Two and a half years ago, a beloved pastor, Jeremy Vicaro, left our church after 10 years of service and went to serve as the senior pastor of Fresno. We were celebrating that, but it was also a, a sad day for us. But uh, there was another person who left at the same time that it was also equally sad um, because his wife, Diane, uh, during her 10 years of leadership here was vivacious and, and inspiring and faithful, and she contributed greatly to the, the welfare of this church. Well, Diane is worshiping with us today, so I wanted to say welcome, Diane. I didn't mention this to you, but would you mind giving the sermon this morning? (laughs) We're making our way through a journey of the Acts. We're calling it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I, I hope by now that you are as inspired as I am as we see one story after another of how spirit filled people, ordinary people, were used by God in powerful, powerful ways. Last week, we heard the, the very compelling story of, of Stephen, didn't we? Uh, Stephen, who was just an ordinary, spirit-filled table waiter, but who began to proclaim the Lord in such a powerful way that the enemies of Jesus destroyed him too. A mob dragged him outside of the city gates, and they stoned him to death. And so Stephen became, with his Christ-like questions and prayers to the Lord, he became the first martyr of the Christian church. As a result of that, if you've been reading, how many are reading along in our journey through Acts? Awesome. Then if, if you read at the beginning of this week's chapter, you saw that as a result of Stephen's persecu- uh, of his, his martyrdom, the whole church was persecuted, wasn't it? And, and they, actually, they fled the city of Jerusalem. The only ones who stayed behind were the apostles. Interestingly, though, we read that as they fled, they preached. Did you see that? As they ran away, they preached the word. And so we have fleeing preachers who are on the way out, but they are not going to let the opportunity pass them by. And we are introduced by Luke now to one of those fleeing preachers. His name was Philip. He also was one of the first seven deacons, if you'd like to call them that. He was the second one mentioned in the list. And he's the other one that gets press. The other five disappear into the mists of history, but Stephen and Philip, we learned something about. Last week was Stephen. This week we hear about Philip. The first thing we are told when Philip fled Jerusalem was that he made his way into Samaria, the people, the land of the Samaritans, which was north of Jerusalem. You all know by now, because you are good Sunday school students, you know how much the Jews hated the Samaritans and how reciprocal the feelings were. Uh, There there was just great cultural and religious enmity between these two peoples. But Jesus loved the Samaritans. Jesus reached out to the Samaritans. Jesus made a Samaritan the hero of one of his most famous parables, the, the Good Samaritan. Even the words together would have been unthinkable to a Jew. But the Good Samaritan... Jesus met a woman from Samaria at a well in John chapter 4. Remember? The Samaritan woman. And she was so touched by her encounter with the Messiah that she went home, told her village, and all of the village came to Christ. So Jesus loved the Samaritans. And, uh, and so the Holy Spirit of Jesus sends Philip into Samaria to preach the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised that he did this. By the way, because he said in Acts chapter 1, this is, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When Philip went into Samaria, he began to preach and there was such powerful response that demon-possessed people were being set free with the demons shrieking as they left the people. We read that 
paralytics, that cripples were healed miraculously and that the entire community believed and were baptized and ultimately they received the same gift of the Holy Spirit when Peter and John came to check things out. They had to check it out. How could it be that God was really doing this work among the Samaritans? But it was the case. And they were there and saw the Holy Spirit come upon them in great power. So Philip was a part of Jesus' game plan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, right? And now we find that Philip was also a part of the next part of the game plan, the ends of the earth. As he reaches out toward part of the ends of the earth, a community, a country called Ethiopia. I want to tell you the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now an angel of the Lord told Philip to go, to, go south to that road, to the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a very important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in this chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked him. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the eunuch had been reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of the scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. As they were traveling along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptized the eunuch. And when they came back up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. This is a story from God's holy word from the book of Acts chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that even in today's news we read of Libyans who are ancestors of these Ethiopians who have given their life to Christ and are being murdered for their faith. Even today, 2,000 years later, the heritage of this Ethiopian eunuch continues. So we thank you for Philip's faithfulness and we pray, God, that we might learn from him as well. In Jesus' name.
Amen. For the last year, we have been focusing on the same theme again and again. And I'll just tell you right now, it's a theme that we're going to be, we have settled on this and we will be here for a long time. And it is simply this theme. We are called as followers of Jesus Christ to make disciples for Jesus. That is the theme. We are called to make disciples of Jesus. And what we are fighting against is the religious culture that says that that job belongs only to the paid Christians, the full-time Christians in the blue nightgowns up front on Sunday mornings. That that job of disciple-making is ours, but not yours. And the Bible could not be clearer in it by saying, no, that's not the case. Jesus said, you, if you're my disciple, are going to make disciples. That's what we do. And what we need to understand is that disciple-making does not happen on accident. It happens on purpose. We make disciples intentionally. You only make disciples if you're doing it on purpose. Now, intentional is not the same as pushy. And I'm afraid that that is the image that scares so many of us from being obedient to the Lord. We have this image of disciple makers as being in people's faces, shoving the Bible down their throats, forcing them to have conversations that they do not want to have. But if you are making disciples that way, you have paid no attention to the way Jesus made disciples. He never acted that way. Philip gives us another example as we look to this story of how we can be intentional without being obnoxious. Isn't that a worthwhile undertaking for us as believers? How we can be obedient and be intentional as disciple makers without being obnoxious about it. So there are some things that I learn and perhaps you will learn with me from the story of Philip. First of all, Philip teaches us to go. Say go. Not the first time you've heard that word, but you're going to hear it again. The story begins with an angel telling Philip, I want you to go to the road to the south, the road, that, the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip listens and he goes. And then as he sees a chariot going by, the spirit says, now I want you to go to that chariot. Once again, Philip listens and then he goes. The first step of intentional disciple making is to go. And this should not come as any surprise to any of us who have been listening for the past few months about these sermons. Remember Jesus' great commission? His parting shot in Matthew 28. The the last words that we have recorded in in Matthew's gospel. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples of all nations. The interesting thing that we've learned this year, though, is that that word go is not a very good translation, is it? What's the actual translation of the Greek word? As you go, look at you paying attention. I just, that's so encouraging. As you go, in your going, along your way. That's what the word really means. As you go, in your going, along your way, make disciples. So what Jesus was saying to his disciples in the Great Commission was this. As you are going along in life, wherever God calls you to go, go and make disciples. Pay attention. My spirit will be speaking to you. Pay attention to my spirit. Listen for my voice. And when I tell you to go, go. And isn't that exactly what happens with Philip? He's paying attention to the leading of the Spirit, and when the Spirit says go, he goes. But it was not a very detailed instruction, was it? He said, go south to the road, that road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. That was a big highway. 
That was the primary access point down to Egypt. And so it was busy and it was long. Telling Philip to go to the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza would be like telling us, go to I-5. Not exactly a pinpoint location, was it? Two weeks ago when we were in Seattle for a family funeral, the cemetery was a, uh, a long way away from the church where we were going to have the celebration of Anne's life. And, and so, since I was unfamiliar with the roads, I, I talked to my telephone and asked her to take me there. And, uh, and, and I began to drive as I listened. But I must tell you that I do not find this a very satisfying way for me to travel. I prefer to have the whole route laid out for me. I would prefer that she would say, all right, you're going to go west on Lake City Way for 0.4 miles. Turn left on 135th. You'll go for one mile. Take a right on Sandpoint Way. Proceed for eight miles. Take a left on the Montlake Bridge. Go across one and a half miles. Look for Wiley. Take a left. Meander your way through the neighborhood until you come to the church. What I get is, in two miles, take a left. Take a left now. And if I miss, you were supposed to take a left, idiot. (laughs) This is a lot like listening to the voice of the Spirit, actually. Very rarely does God explain in detail what His plan is for us. Isn't that true? Most often it is like what Philip experienced. Okay, here is the next thing I want you to do. I want you to go to that highway. I want you to go here. If we are not willing to do the next thing God asks, we will never do the ultimate thing God asks because we will never get there. Do you hear me? If we will not do the next thing, we will never do the great thing because we will never get where God wants to take us. Acts teaches us that every believer is filled with the same Holy Spirit who speaks to all of us and we listen to his his leading. It's simple. It is clear. And if we are willing to listen and if we obey, God is going to use us. Do you sense that God is saying, go to that party even though you're not inclined to? Then go. Do you you sense that God is saying, reach out to that person that I've been putting on your mind this last week? Then go to that keyboard. Do you sense that God is telling you that your workmate is really struggling in her life? Then go to her desk. When you do the first thing God tells you, then he will give you the next thing. And if you won't do the first, why should he give you another? And almost always it's going to be one step at a time. It seems that the Spirit chooses to dispense information on a need-to-know basis. And intentional disciple-makers listen, and when the Spirit speaks They go where they are told. So we go. The second thing that Philip teaches me, we loiter. We go and then we loiter. He said, go to that chariot and then, I love the next part, and stay near it. Did you see that? Go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, you realize what the Spirit is telling him to do, don't you? The chariot is rolling along the highway. That's what chariots do on highways. The eunuch is there. He's reading along. The driver's driving along. It probably was going slow because if you're bouncing too much, it would be hard to, to read. So probably going slow. But still, the chariot was moving along the road. 
And so this is what the Spirit tells Philip to do. Hi. How you doing? Out for a run to Gaza. That's what he did. Go to the chariot and stay near it, the Spirit said. And of course, when he did, he listened to this guy who was reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. And so, and so I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Part of disciple making is loitering. It, it is staying near to the people that God has called us to stay near to. It is waiting and listening and paying attention to what's going on in their lives and caring about it. Too often, well-intended Christians feel like they need to crash in, pull out the Bible, break out the four spiritual laws, and close the deal. And what this means, of course, is that they're not paying attention at all to what is actually going on in the person's life because they are just another spiritual project to them. And so they blunder their way in full of all of the right answers and good intentions, and nothing happens. Or even worse, they end up turning the people off on the gospel. You know, I love my wife. I respect my wife, too. She is one of the most spirit-sensitive persons I know. And I have been walking with her and watching her as she is dealing with her own grief at the loss of this sister-in-law. But also watching as she is trying to sense what the Spirit is telling her to do for her stepbrother and for the family that has lost a a wife and and a beloved mom. And so Cindy has scheduled a, a meal next week up in Seattle. And she's already reached out to her niece. And frankly, it hasn't been easy because these are very private people. They don't welcome a lot of of attention. But Cindy feels called to simply be near them and see what God will do. And so that is what we are about. Disciple making requires a A patient presence. It means earning the right to be heard because we demonstrate by the fact that we are willing to loiter in and around their lives that we actually care for them as persons and not just as spiritual projects. Right? So we learn to go. We learn to loiter. And then finally we learn to question. We learn to question. Ask questions. Philip asked great question, a great question. And again, this is nothing new. Jesus is the one who taught us how to do this. If you'll notice, some of the most poignant encounters he has with the disciples is not when he's giving them answers, but rather when he's asking them questions and then questions under the questions and questions deeper still. So Philip is running along this chariot and he hears a guy reading out loud and he asks the simple question, what? Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, heck no, I don't understand. How could I unless I have someone to explain it to me? Would you mind hopping up here and and doing so? It was like saying, sick him to a pit bull, wasn't it? So Philip jumps in. He doesn't have to be running anymore, which is also a good thing. Providentially, and I do mean providentially, the Egyptian, the Ethiopian was reading uh, the most important messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. So I'll just tell you right now, if you're going to memorize a, an, at one place, a destination in Isaiah that predicts the coming of the Messiah, there's no more important chapter than chapter 53. Say it. Say Isaiah 53. Because it is the story of the suffering Messiah. And this made no sense to the Jews. It did not fit in the rest of their story. 
Because they never imagined that the Messiah was going to come and suffer like a sheep led to slaughter. That mutely before his assassins, they, they imagined that the Messiah would be a great conqueror, a warrior. So this was always a puzzle. And, and for this devout, God-fearing Ethiopian, it was still a puzzle to him. And all Philip had to do was ask, do you understand what you are reading? And off they went. By the way, next year, starting in September, we're going to read together as a church through the entire of the Bible. And every Sunday, we're going to preach on how what we have just read, both in the Old and the New Testament, points to Jesus. So if you are faithful in your attendance, and by that mean I, I mean actually coming every week to church, if you're faithful in our attendance, at the end of the year, a year from now, you'll be able to do what Philip did. And I would say that this is the step, this questioning, it's the step I think that requires the most courage and the most intention. It's not a hard thing to hang around with people that we enjoy. But listening for that spirit-led opportunity to ask a question that is more than the surfacey, how you doing? And that's for the sake of the women who are on retreat last week. The answer typically to the how you doing is what? Fine. Fine. Which is a big fat lie often. But that's the way we respond. The surfacey, how you doing? Asking good, deep questions, that's a step that requires guts. It means taking a breath and saying, okay, here we go. And it requires initiative. Did you notice that the Spirit told him where to go, but he did not say what to say? There's a sense in which the Spirit trusted the initiative of Philip once he was in the right, right spot. And Philip knew to ask the right question. You know, Microsoft makes a, a computer called Surface. And I'm reminded about it every week when I'm watching golf on CBS, which is my uh, pleasure after a Sunday service. <clears throat> I know, insanely boring for many of you, but I like it. Um, because on, in front of each of the announcers is, is a Surface computer with the word Surface written on the back of it. I can only imagine how many millions of dollars Microsoft uh, paid for that visual. There is a, a sense in which that same word is written on every one of us. Surface. I don't want to go deeper. I don't want you to ask a deeper question. I don't even really want to ask you a deeper question. Let's keep it on the surface. And yet if we don't have the guts to do so, we waste the opportunity that the Spirit has provided. And we never take those relationships to the place that might make a real eternal difference. Friday in my life group, as we were reading through our passage, chapter 8 of of Acts, we asked this question, so what have you learned today? How are you going to use it in your life today? One of the other questions we often ask in that group is simply this, on a scale of 1 to 10, how is your marriage and why? Beloved, I'm appalled at how broken marriages are in this community and even in this church. We are hiding it. It is all surfacy. But there are marriages that are on the fritz and people are not seeking help and people who know aren't stepping in to try to do something about it. Shame on us because we don't want to go below the surface. I heard this week of another question that was asked of a group of non-Christians and young Christians and it was a great question. It was this. What one word describes what you aspire this season of your life to look like? That's a provocative question, isn't it? So what is the one question that you could ask the person that the Holy Spirit has you loitering around right now and up until now you've chosen to keep it on the surface?
The Holy Spirit wants to save you. The Holy Spirit wants to save your family. The Holy Spirit wants to save your friends. And he wants to use you to do it. What a privilege. And so Philip says, go and loiter and ask great questions. And you are going to discover the joy of being used by God to get below the surface with the good news of Jesus. And when we come to this meal today, we are reminded of what that good news cost, aren't we? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before, its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. That is the price that was paid that we might have life. Christ gave his life that we might live. And he gives his spirit that we might live well.